Authorized is on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash authorized pod if you want to support us. For $3 a month, you can help us buy these books. For $6 a month, we'll give you a shout-out on the podcast. And for even more money, you can demand that we read and discuss a certain novelization. Pretty cool. If we get enough listeners, we will start putting out bonus episodes, so tell your friends. Authorized.com. It's not authorized.com. What? Patreon.com slash authorized pod. Welcome, co-hosts, guests, and audience. This is Authorized, a podcast where we rancidly discuss the novelization of any hit stage musical fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations are very trite, with with the best of intentions. These books endorse the good evening co-hosts, guests, and audience. Wait, sorry. With the best of intentions, these books endorse the treacly, manipulative sentimentality of the musical they are based on and do further misguided work to humanize a story about a hurt person hurting people. While the social causes behind novelizations are noble, not every story that includes an element of mental health struggle is worth telling, especially if the story doesn't have a strong take on the issue. Novelizations unquestionably assume the necessity of the story they are adapting and retell it with the parlance of an after-school special. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is... Have you ever felt like nobody was there? Have you ever felt forgotten in the middle of nowhere? Have you ever felt like you could disappear? Like you could fall and no one would hear? We're your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. I'm Johnny Pomato, and I don't remember the songs. I'm Mark Andrew Marco. <laughs> and I'm Hannah Blackman. No additional comment. Dear Evan Hansen is a 2021 musical film directed by Stephen Chub. How do you say that? Chabosky. Cool. It is an adaptation of the 2015 criminal stage musical of the same name, <laughs> created by Stephen Levinson, Benji Pasek, and Justin Paul, who are committing crimes every single day. Uh, Hannah, it's Benj. There's I don't no care. Oh. I don't care. <laughs> Fuck him. Of course Sorry. it is. <laughs> the story follows Evan Hansen, a socially awkward high school student who longs for friendship, romance, and acceptance. After the story meticulously sets Evan up perfectly to be mistaken for the best friend of a classmate who commits suicide, Evan is in fact mistaken for the best friend of a classmate who commits suicide. Um, benefiting from the phenomenon of grief theater, 
Evan stumbles his way into an ever-snowballing lie in which he places himself further and further into the narrative of the deceased boy's past. As Evan builds a new life on this falsehood, he may find that it is better to be alone as himself than beloved in a fabricated identity. And again, he does crimes. The novelization of Dear <laughs> I can't get over it. He's awful. The novelization of Dear Evan Hansen is a novelization of the stage show and not of the film that resulted from it, which is fascinating on many levels as a piece of cross uh, media. It was written by Val Emick. I, I seem to have forgotten to put the publisher, which is, of course, Hatchet Book Group. Hatchet Book Group. Hatchet Circa Book 2018. Group. Circa 2018. But you may be asking yourself, also imagine that during that intro I had Val Emick written on my cast. Um, <laughs> you may have, you may be wondering who is Val Emick, this guy who wrote this book. Val Emick is an author, musician, and seemingly retired actor. After appearing in roles on 30 Rock, Vinyl, and Ugly Betty, Emick has largely pivoted into a writing career. His debut novel, The Reminders, released just one month before his novelization of Dear Evan Hansen, and the two seem to share some DNA. The plot description reads, Grief-stricken over his partner's death, Gavin sets fire to every physical reminder in the couple's home. A neighbor captures the, captures the ordeal on video, turning this unsung TV actor into a household name. Now, Gavin is fleeing the hysteria of Los Angeles for New Jersey, hoping to find peace with the family of an old friend. Instead, he finds Joan. And Joan struggles from a condition where she has like a... Uh, photographic memory that's so detailed it sort of seems to hinder everything else that she does. So, kind of already, it, it, this these, sounds like a better musical. By the way, I it it does, but also like you could see why they would poach this guy for Evan Hansen. It's like a story about how social media blah 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 causes you to you know have X Y Z struggles. Like it, it seems to share a little bit of. Uh, Am I, do, do, do you guys see where I'm coming from with that? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Having just Googled this guy, didn't realize he was an actor. He's that episode of 30 Rock when Liz dates a 19-year-old. He is the 19-year-old. The <laughs> 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 Let's talk about his other passions. So Val took up guitar when he was 15 years old and had a bout of Lyme disease that oh. prohibited all oh, strenuous no. activity and essentially relegated him to staying at home. Um just a random Lyme disease tangent. One time I was working at a job and a guy came up to me and he said, I have some gaps on my resume. I want to apply to this job, but I just had Lyme disease for a really long time. And I took his resume and I, I laughed, which was mean, but it said that he was from Blood Street in Lyme, Connecticut. Oh my hey, goodness. Wait a minute. Yeah, it was a double whammy. Uh, all right. Hope he's doing well. Anyway. <laughs> As a musician, <laughs> Val remains uh, very on-brand as an earnest romantic type. I really enjoy this guy's album titles, which uh, just seem like a very specific type of musician that uh, probably would annoy me in person, but I'm glad he exists. So we've got Val Emick, mean. Val Emick, acting the optimist. Val Emick, whatever's chasing you. And Val Emick, bulldozer. Oh, don't forget Little Daggers. Little Daggers have, is good. There's other stuff, too. Sunlight oh, Search Party, Slow Sunlight Down Sunlight Search Party. Looking for a feeling you never knew you needed. Ooh. That sounds like a song from Dear Evan Hansen. Mm. Yeah. It's just like I, I wrote a, a bio on this guy that we're basically at the end of, and I feel like the 
album titles say way more about who he is. <laughs> I can't believe we, all know we that couldn't guy. get him as a guest on this. Like, yeah. I hey, wasn't we sure were we bugged. wanted to. That was, I, I hadn't read the book yet, but I thought, you know what? Dear Evan Hansen novelization, maybe I don't ask the author on. <laughs> Not this time. Not this time. Um, okay. Emic is a big proponent of various social causes, having founded Artist Amplification, a program to help independent musicians and bands gain exposure to fans and the music industry. Additionally, his website actively promotes the ACLU, nonprofits funding diabetes research, as well as the NRDC and ASPCA. Our guest today, oh returning from about a month ago, a writer for Cosmopolitan, Polygon, and Vulture, currently covering Westworld at which outlet? Vulture. Vulture. And maybe it's over, honestly. Maybe I know everything. I don't I don't know what time is anymore. <laughs> if it's over, they're out there. The disaster is when we go currently covering Westworld and they go, I'm I love her, I'm crazy about her, I must find these reviews right now, and they haven't posted yet. That's the disaster. Well that won't be so. Anyway, Leah Marilla <laughs> Thomas. How you doing? Hello. Good to have you back. Doing great. Can't believe I read this book. The way this shook out is Oh that... boy. Yeah, let's get into it. <laughs> Leah had not yet been on the podcast. Leah, a longtime friend of Hannah Blackman. Someone I had seen on Twitter, but you know, don't know. I'm out and out. uh we had her we had her booked for uh Star Trek Into Darkness, which, you know, you heard a few weeks ago. And uh, Leah, I think you reached out to Hannah and you were like, "This it's crazy, there's this Dear Evan Hansen novelization, right? Yeah, like, you know what would be funny? If you did this. <laughs> you should cover this book. Like, did so you know this exists? Not an hour later, I was booked on this mm. podcast. <laughs> I think I, I said like, to if you, this... if we cover it, you are required to be on it. Yeah, that tracks. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I basically was like, I don't know this person, but if they're going to put us through that, they're going to put themselves through that. Of course. <laughs> Without a doubt. Uh, Leah, what is your relationship to Dear Evan Hansen as an intellectual property prior to re reading this book? You know, on night, I, I haven't seen it live um, because I was fortunate to learn what it was about before I had the chance to buy a ticket. So <laughs> I decided that's not for me. Um, I don't even know what e year... Was it? I certainly like knew people. No, I knew people was, involved. It, it came to New York in I think the fall of 2016. Okay, it won that 2017 so, Tony. Yeah, yeah. The, so, the Kevin Spacey Tonys, you may remember. Oh God, I do remember. Oh yeah, you um, had the cast, the Tonys. Yeah, a, a particularly bad Tony Awards for me. Um. So then I had a grud. I think a, because because I had seen we Hannah and I had both seen multiple shows that year that we would much have preferred win awards over this one and so then i had a grudge against it um despite also knowing what it was about and thinking that people were a little wild for liking it um i don't know saw the film saw that there was a book has sort of been on the periphery should i admit to have watched a, a bootleg of it bootlegs are bad don't do them <laughs> But I have seen one. I, so, I think we're all in favor of no one supporting this financially in any way. Yeah. 
I, I uh, got this on Audible and promptly returned it as soon as I was finished with it. Oh, so. incredible. You can return a book on Audible? You can. Yeah, no questions asked. I mean, I used my free credit for it. So. Yeah, yeah. My, a friend of mine had an advanced reader copy, and so I borrowed it from her. So she didn't. She got it for free, and I got it for free. I and had to buy has, a used book, and it and only comes in hardcover. <laughs> it came Yikes. with sticky notes that she put in there of parts that offended her. So that <laughs> was great. Yeah. yeah. I feel like I cannot stress enough that this book is in first person and there's no one's head I want to be in less than Evan Hansen's. <laughs> okay. Wait, I have I have something that'll maybe maybe I need to get out of the way right up front. Which is it, it's I'm not going to be like I liked the movie or I liked the book. That's not going to happen. I'm not going to come out in defense of Dear Evan Hansen. But I don't totally get the vitriol. It just seems kind of like blandly bad. Why do why why is this hated? I mean, I would say that the musical has he has no repercussions for his actions in the musical, which is mm -hmm. pretty deplorable. The book does something about that and so does the movie, which I feel like they heard of the criticism and said, "Okay, fine." Yeah. So there's that. Two Pask and Paul are fucking shitty songwriters. Yes. They're not yeah. good at musical theater. And they don't write good songs. And I think this marked, like, a big turning point in their career because they have, like, very interesting dogfights, got some interesting stuff. They were a little edgier. Ha 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 ha. Um, and a little more interesting as songwriters. And then Dear Evan Hansen comes out and it's the most bland, soulless, anthem -y music. And then everything they've done since has been yeah. more of the same. And then they repurposed the big song from Dear Evan Hansen into Greatest Showman, which is criminal. Yeah, yeah it's the ashamed. same song in a minor key. The exact key. same song. Yeah, yeah I feel like there, it's like a three-part vitriol. There's vitriol for Pasek and Paul. A lot of people just got very annoyed with Ben Platt very quickly. Uh, in a way that's like once... Cause I, so I saw the show when it was in previews and... Walked out of that saying, oh, this is going to close in three months. <laughs> Thinking no one would like it uh, and was completely wrong. But the one thing I will say is he Ben Platt was very engaging in the stage performance. To see that live, you're like, this is an intense performance. He sings it very well. He acts his face off, which obviously when you translate to that movie and he doesn't change his performance at all, he looks like a psycho. A ghoul. A, yeah. a demon. <laughs> a ghoul. Also, next week on Authorized, face off. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's true. So come back. The third thing is sort of just the the plot of it all. It's just like it's it's a weird plot in general, especially because most people who did not know what the show was about just thought it was like a coming out story or something. Uh, and the fact that I feel like if you're going to tell a story about this, I feel like you could tell like a a horror movie or a thriller mm -hmm. from the perspective of a family who thinks it, that this kid is like their dead son's best friend and you come to find out he's not like that could be yeah. like yeah, an Ari Aster good. movie or something. It's an interesting story. It could be a good story, but it has completely the wrong tone. Like there's nothing wrong with a cynical musical. There's nothing wrong with a musical in which the protagonist does bad things like Sweeney Todd murders people. Even Little Shopper. So, yeah. Little Shop of Horrors doing bad things, but those musicals know what they are. This one doesn't think, believes in itself way too much, with the exception <laughs> yeah, of gross. Sincerely Me, I would say. I agree. The best in, song. My, in which it is, a, in which it's cynical and a dark comedy and 
Yeah, I wish the whole musical had the tone of Sincerely Me, which is just like so sinister and mercenary. Um, which one is that? When he, where is he in the it's, movie? It's What's he the doing? one song Connor and Evan sing together, where it's their fake. It's friendship. where they're composing the emails. Oh, I liked that. Yeah, yeah. The no homo fun. song, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Great, it's funny. Uh, I had an aunt who took my 13-year-old cousin to see this show and was like, wow, it's such a powerful piece on mental illness. And I was like, oh, no. Yeah. He doesn't. Yeah. yeah, in which horrifying. he doesn't take his medication for the whole thing. Yeah. Moms <laughs> love this like, show. Everything's fine. I'm good. I got this. Because they want a map. Yeah. <sighs> we all Let's want Let's talk that about that, the the mental illness aspect, because I, I dissed that, or rather Evan dissed that in the intro to the episode. Um <laughs> And yeah, this this book especially, I feel like has a an attitude of like, if we are talking about mental illness, if we're talking about ideation, about self-harm, then it's a story worth telling. But when you really, really put the screws to this book, what is it telling? What is the movie saying about these issues? Because all I can parse, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm stupid, all I can parse is that there's a twist that makes it double about that thing, but I can't tell how that's insightful or making any sort of point. I mean, the stage show in particular is just like straight boy with anxiety, co-ops, dead boy, so that he can have a better life and just takes over all of Connor's like story and uh Whatever he was going through, we'll never know because Evan presents something that he made up completely and no one ever learns the truth except Connor's family. But we do. We, we learn the truth. Uh, right. Through, and we through the this novelization. Um, yes. The, the story also does something else that, that really especially bothers me in that it presents the, this sort of fantasy wish fulfillment of, that I, I think a lot of people have, a lot of young people have, of becoming famous for doing a selfless act. Uh, that like, oh, how did you know? How did you go viral? Oh, well, everyone caught me um, giving a speech about suicide prevention, and now I'm a hero. Uh, everyone the, caught me. I stood yeah. up on stage. Oh, and I did. did I, and then you know, and that's a plot point in the in the uh, the story in the, in the play is like, oh no, I didn't want any of this. Oh gosh, someone was filming that, and and now it's online and it's viral. Oh no, this isn't what I wanted at all. Uh, <laughs> and never mind that, like. You know, not only does that happen, but he becomes famous, really, I mean, because he does something horrible. It's not a selfless act. It's not, uh, whether it's accidental or not, he is just a horrible, horrible person. Uh, I also saw this off-Broadway, um, uh, off-Broadway and in previews. Uh, word hadn't really gone out yet. I had one friend who went to see it, and he loved it, raved about it. And so uh, my wife, Robin, and I went to see it. And Are you still friends with that person? Uh, yeah, dicey. Um, <laughs> and I, mean, I, I will say the first act of the show, I was not really enjoying. It had a few moments, a few songs. I was like, okay, that's not the worst thing in the world. Uh, okay, I'll see where this is going. But by intermission, uh, but you know, the, the act one finale, you will be found. I had really turned on it. And then the lights come up at the end of Act One, and I turn to my wife, and she is sobbing. She is so moved by it, and I'm thinking, "Oh no!" And 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 she says, "What do you think of it?" And I say, "Uh, it's it's okay. It has its moments." And I really tried to convince myself, "Yeah, sure, sure. This is harmless, right?" And 
Then Act 2 happens, and I think everything just gets so much worse. So much worse. <laughs> and fortunately, I think Robin picked up on a lot of that, too. And, and we have since grown a mutual disdain for it. But uh, at the time, I thought, oh, no, am I going to have to pretend that I love this? <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that you said she came around to your opinion, because the Robin I know had <laughs> Ted Bundy as her computer background once. So She's wearing uh, a Ted Bundy to shirt today. <laughs> Wow. What is the major change that you were alluding to between him having repercussions and not having repercussions? What's added in the movie and the book? Well, in the show, he just waits for the Connors to do something about his horrific lie, and they don't, and he doesn't do anything himself. He just moves on with his life. Hey, he says wow. words fail. Yeah, so then in, yeah. the, in the movie, obviously, he goes on a whole journey to try and like research him and find somebody and in and then in the book as we see he reads the books those middle school top 10 list of books that That is is an invention for just the book and the movie i think which is really fascinating the Um, way he puts down a book that he just finished yeah he's like got it and then he goes on (laughs) to the next one as if he's not he's not getting insight he's just like i i've done it and now the next book it's also a book that Connor wrote in eighth grade when he was, what, like, thir- 12, 13? Like, yeah. uh, I don't think they necessarily still apply to what Connor's life was <laughs> as a 17-year-old. And then, of course, in the book, uh, number one favorite character, Miguel, shows up and <laughs> says, you are absolved. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you for doing what I could not. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I-, I guess that was the biggest revelation in this book to me. I mean, less so that, like, it it doesn't entirely let Evan off the hook, uh, but the fact that uh, Connor does. Connor, we get the ghost of Connor observing all of this and sort of shrugging it off like, oh, well, let me see how this plays out. Yeah, oh, this is, <laughs> wow, I'm starting to believe myself that Evan and I were friends. Gosh, he sure <laughs> is a great guy. Uh, I was just dumbstruck by this uh <laughs> this notion All right, from the very uh first hint that like uh evan sees like a figure through a window uh the the night after i, I guess connor has already killed himself but evan doesn't know this yet and i'm thinking right off the bat like wait wait is, is there a ghost in this now are we doing a ghost thing and uh would have made I it mean, better the show is confused on the ghost situation because they want to keep connor in it they want that voice but they aren't willing to be like he's a mean nasty ghost or he's just like everything that evan hates about himself or everything evan wants to hear from anyone they like can't make up their mind it jumps around the ghost in the show shows up like two maybe three times not enough to be worth it and then the it's, i mean the book does this sort of creative thing to be like there's a ghost but not really and the movie's like no ghost nah nada the show commits the hardest to connor being just a, an asshole all the time, right? Because <laughs> yes. I think he is more absolved in both adaptations, too. I mean, in the book, he is too pure for this world. <laughs> Verbatim, Miguel. It, uh, laughable. So, can someone explain Miguel to the listeners? I feel like that's oh, crucial. I would love to. Or so to in, the, in, these, yeah. in these Connor POV chapters, we learn... That when he was at an all-boys school, he had, like, somewhat of a flirtation relationship with this boy named Miguel. Um, This is a new character. He is there to prove that Connor did have a friend. More than a friend, maybe. Um, Definitely. Definitely. 
both yeah because also both adaptations flip a new character not flip but queer a different character the movie does Jared so that when he's making gay jokes, it's cool. It's fine. Um, they don't change a single line of dialogue. They're just like, it's nope. okay for me to say it because yeah. I'm gay. <laughs> um, and then it's Connor in the book. The ghost of this kid, Connor. Let's talk about his, his appearances in this book. So in, I don't even, I didn't read the physical book, so I, I just have it. So I don't know why 63 pages in, we have one that, a chapter that's got an I. Are his chapters I, like in Roman numerals? They're renumbered, the the yeah. Book? Okay, anything involving the physical media, you guys are going to have to chime mm-hmm. in on, because I do not. Yeah, they're Roman numerals, it. and they're italicized. Mm-hmm. So in his first chapter, as a ghost, uh, it starts, I thought it was a dream. How could I know? It's not like someone gives you a heads up. Hey, just so you know, you're dead. I have a question about this chapter. Yeah, I think I'm going to pose it right now, Marco. There is a part in this chapter where they discuss the way he died. Right. Did he kill himself? Seems like it was an accident. It's definitely an accident. Is it revealed in the play how he died? No. So in the book. That's the thing about the play is the play wants suicide to be a plot device, but they don't want to talk about it any more than they have to. I mean, I don't think you need to, if, you want, if you're if you writing a story about suicide, I don't think you need to be like, he no. took 20 oxys. Like, <laughs> that's not necessary. But right. the book goes in the opposite direction. The book goes, is talking about how he's just driving around like a madman, just basically like being a little rapscallion. And uh, there's a passage that says, there was no deer in the road that night. I can come clean about that now. I crashed into that tree because I felt like it. My messiest decisions were always like that. Made in a split second. So here you're like, okay, suicide. Suicide by car. Then he says, nine out of ten times I'd walk away only wounded. Then, on the tenth time, it's like, he didn't want to die. Why? Yeah. Well, and, and if you found your kid... just self-destructive. Yeah. Yeah, if you found your kid wrapped around a tree... Even if he was, like, totally drugged up or drunk or whatever, like, in the most incriminating whatever, you would still probably not jump to suicidal. It's very strange. But is, didn't he overdose on pills? That's the that's what I gleaned. I feel like they mentioned in another part of that chapter that it was pills. Pills are... But, so, well, all, I think all the drugs are so vaguely referenced in this because they're afraid of making this a drug story but for the most part connor just seems like a pothead like it's very rare that any drug is mentioned that isn't like oh uh, miguel had a little weed on him and i took the there is a part where he says he went to rehab and that's where he picked up the hard stuff yeah Yeah. Um, and then and then in i think his last chapter he says he called his dealer because miguel didn't text him back oh i'm trying to find somewhere in one of the Connor chapters where he talks about like taking lots of pills it really felt like oh well that's a mistake like he's used to taking too many pills it's kind of a cry for attention and this time it it kind of went too far in in that case that at least makes sense because you could believe why the family would think it was suicide yeah, it is really wild that this book is like, but it kind of wasn't. Like, he didn't just want to kill himself. He didn't go out of his way to kill himself. It just kind of like, oopsies happened after a series of 
um, you know, rough times and bad behavior. Actually, he didn't kill himself. Actually, he did have friends. Actually, he was a nice person. <laughs> yeah, Bye. he never threw anything at anybody. He was sorry. He was nice. Oh, that was a lovely story. Yeah, I thought the anecdote about the, the second grade teacher was quite nice. I just kind of prefer if he's just kind of a shitty guy. We never really get to know anything about him. Like, I think the musical is doing a, a making a better choice of being like, well, all we know is what we heard and we'll never know for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And giving too much information about what a sweetheart he was kind of like undercuts it for me. But the, the second grade teacher thing, it does, I think, serve a function. Does somebody want to tackle that since that's invented whole cloth for the book? Sure. Well, I think in the musical or the movie don't they mention that he threw a printer they reference that he yeah. like threw a desk at a teacher yeah and so in the book he in his pov talks about the full story of that which is not just that he like threw a printer towards the teacher but that like clearly oh, he had gotcha yeah he it was second grade he was supposed to be line leader he accidentally got skipped over had severe anxiety about it, threw a printer across the room or threw part of the printer, and the teacher kept him after class and just, like, supported him and listened to him, and he was the line leader the next day, and she created a situation where if he needed to talk to her, he'd write it down and put it in a jar, and then they would talk about it when the time was right. So it's, like, actually a very sweet story about someone who did do something right, and we see her at the wake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which Connor I thought was is- a nice moment. Connor is definitely in the wrong in this situation. I understand he's like seven years old, but like it's a very boiling the frog situation where it's not like he just snaps. He's in some sort of stressful situation that keeps escalating. And then eventually he feels like he needs to like push the printer or whatever. And it becomes the story of he threw the printer. And the thing I really love about it that you're, you're all alluding to is it would be so easy to tell a story about a, a destructive teenager who dies and paint it as like a failure of our systems a failure of our schools or like education or whatever the nuance to put this anecdote in that's this is one of the things that accelerated him in a bad direction but the reaction of his teacher was to support him unconditionally in the wake of him wronging her i think is really quite beautiful and it's a nice touch it is a nice moment, the you getting the teacher's side of the story as well, and and you hearing what she has to say at the wake, and and then we get the you know the full story from Connor. Uh, but I do think that the book lets l- l- excuses so many of Connor's actions throughout the story. Every explanation or every instance of uh, you know ugliness is given an explanation <laughs> that we reach the point where we kind of agree it's like yeah I think it is the parents fault I, I think that they did let him down because everyone else is just like you know there for him as much as they're able to be uh, given what they know and uh, the parents should know more than I don't know than, than we're ever let into it also does a thing where I think that like the we're supposed to see a parallel between Connor and Evan especially the more we get to know Evan, that, like, he did try and kill himself when he fell out of that tree. They have the same sort of, like, emotional issues and anxiety and whatever. And the more you make Connor, like, an innocent who was let down, who, like, didn't have the help he needed, didn't know how to express what he needed, then Evan's really bad behavior, when he does have good support structures, it lets him off the hook, too, which I don't like. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And if you're like, yeah, you can be an asshole and do things wrong and feel sorry, uh, that just feels better, richer, more thoughtful to me than just like, oh, it's okay. If you have anxiety, you can do crimes. You can hurt people. We're all sorry for you. Like, I just don't think that that's good. I don't think that's a good message. Why does Connor wake up in the hospital? He died there. Yeah, I think oh, he, he was over- brought to the hospital he when he died. Or was no, that- I think he so- overdosed and they tried to save him in the hospital, but he died on the bed. Right, I don't think he was found dead. He says, I woke up in the hospital. My family was there, all of them looking at the floor, their phones, the inside of their eyelids, anywhere but at one another or me. Wow. Now, is he a ghost laying in a bed I with no body there? No, I think he like... No, but is the body there? That's that's yes. what's important. Because when yes. he comes back, he says, I saw this like gray dead body. So essentially, he is in a moment right there where he's like, I looked around, nobody was looking at me. He's in a moment where he has died and ghosted, and his family doesn't know he's dead yet. No, I think they, maybe they do. They're just hanging out with his corpse? What the fuck? I mean, he will be found. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. And I think um, if you are in the room with someone as they die, you don't, you know, like, probably if he's in the hospital, the doctors have said to them, like, it's probably too late. Yeah, like if he flatlines, it's over. And then when that happens, you maybe just want to spend a quiet moment with that person and say your goodbyes. So I think the mention of the phone is a little confusing because you think they would all just be like they were looking anywhere but at me. But to be yeah. like, he's dying. You're like, like that's that would be weird. <laughs> uh, but maybe that's the relationship this family had because they're clearly not the strongest quartet. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. The Murphys. Before we move, or I, I wanted to hit that. Um, let me start over. I wanted to hit that thing about the Connor ghost before we moved on from him. But to what Hannah was just saying about the story being about how you can do bad things if you have anxiety. I, I kind of one of the things that I like about the the movie. Uh, which are very few and far between. I found the movie very, very, very boring. Uh, and it's I, one of you the know, worst I, made movies I've ever seen. Well, we haven't brought this up before. I understand that this is like a really bad one, but I'm like already allergic to musical theater. Hell yeah! And so, despite having to watch starred one that's, in several musicals <laughs> and having majored in directing, it's like yeah, I don't belong to any world. I'm like between worlds. No one, <laughs> no one loves me, and I have no home. But um, the the movie's ending kind of works for me a little bit where yeah he does really bad things and he does them for basically no reason and he gets in not enough trouble at the end i don't know maybe it's just because i used to be like a really shitty person but like i i was like man this is one of the only times i've seen a movie go sometimes you know, you just did a bad thing. Sometimes you can't rationalize away, I did it because of XYZ reasons. Sometimes you have to look at an action you took and go, I did it because I am a bit of a shitbird and I actually did a wrong thing. And it's really hard because I feel like for uh, for most of us who are people who like ourselves, if we get mad at someone in traffic or whatever, we end up going, you know, that was wrong to do, but... I'm not usually like that or blah, 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 blah. To see a movie actually go, 
he did something really wrong. He feels terrible about it. He's a little bit of a pariah, and now he just has to live with that guilt and figure out how to move on. I just don't see that depicted that often without some sort of qualification. I mean, the movie is the best version of the ending, in my opinion. I think it, I agree with what you're saying. It's great that he just has to live with it, and the rest of the school shuns him, as they rightly should. He's and alone he goes, at the orchard at the end of the yeah, movie. He goes out of his way to own up to what he did, take the pariah ship that comes with it, find people who did know Connor, get to know them, and try and actually provide what the family thought they were getting from him. I think that, like, the, yeah, Connor wrote music, here's a song, is, like, cheesy beyond belief and is really obnoxious. (laughs) But the concept of, like, I, I... you thought I gave you something. I didn't. I basically just took it away and made it worse. Let me actually find the thing that will help you. Mm-hmm. Is I think that's like a good expiation for his many, many sins. And the movie is the best version of that. The book does like a light version and the show again does none of it. So well, I, I'm I, with you. I think it's interesting because I think the writers, I don't know at what point in the process they just sort of fell in love with Evan, if it was when Ben Platt joined or just in writing it. Because I think the problem with the show is that they're too into Evan, both in the way they write the music, yeah. but the way they write the characters. And when, because the book is Val Emick, but it does credit Stephen Levinson and Paskin Paul, doesn't Definitely. it? Definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, and so and like, Levinson owns the copyright to the book. Yeah. And Levinson wrote the movie and maybe. And when like, I say the book, I mean the novel, not yeah. the book. I wonder, like, how much input... Like, I wonder if they've come around to criticism since the show opened and said, we want to do something different with the movie and the book to some extent to make that... Though the movie makes the the bizarre decision to basically cut all of the songs that Evan does not sing, except for a few. Because they cut, like, five songs from the movie. Something Wicked's not going to do. I was so mad to realize that that glove song was not in the movie because <laughs> no. I was so ready to listen to nice Danny Pino sing it because I love he's, him. He's like, he's a, that's the movie. He's explicitly a stepfather, right? Yeah. Which I don't understand why they did that to him. Oh, Wild added drama. Add, maybe they wanted to cast him. I, yeah. I, I think cares? it was a diversify, like, a, 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 a diversifying uh, method. There's no but. reason he couldn't be the, those kids, biological parents. I could buy him as Caitlin Deaver's dad. You'd just be like, yeah, she, trends more towards her mom it doesn't matter genetics are crazy right. the stepdad thing just feels so like there's an anti-dad agenda there's an also an anti-mom agenda yeah. true that because they cut and the mom just, song mm-hmm. well can amy adams and then they sing? give uh, julianne yeah, she was song? an enchanted and no wait oh, she sings yeah. so big oh. so small oh wait the the yeah the oh the other the, the cynthia song i mean they did do some serious auto-tuning on everyone who wasn't Ben Platt in that movie, but that, oh, that's movies. That's I, movies. I poignantly haven't seen the movie because I vowed never to, and and since this is technically a novelization of the play, I, I thought I was like mm-hmm. in the clear yeah. for that. Um, but it is interesting to hear some of the things that I guess it attempts to do that I I didn't think that even the novel did a good enough job of fixing. Uh, but uh, I uh, you know I guess it's very popular now to shit on Ben Platt and uh and shit on the story in general but i'd like to say that i hated him and the play from the start (laughs) (laughs) i mean the thing about ben platt is he has a nice voice and everything else about him fucking sucks right like he's (laughs) obnoxious like he's not he's not like a handsome leading man type 
And he's, in De- Evan Hansen, he's like a weasel. He's the worst version of a doughy weasel. And I don't like looking at him. I think he's, I mean, I also watched a boot of the stage show recently. I think he's better on stage. In the movie, he's unwatchable. It's he just, just like has so like a crazy. cute haircut in the stage show and that nice shirt. And like, he's the just haircut a, helps. He's in a costume. He He's also on a stage with Hannah's boyfriend, Mike, <laughs> uh, and a bunch of other people who are age appropriate. Yeah. That's the problem. He's also you can smudge that more. Yeah. And in the movie, he is surrounded by genuine teenagers, and it's ghoulish. And his haircut is an, is so terrifying. And I, what shocked me most is that like I never got used to it. Like every time he showed back yeah. up, I was like, ah, oh, he's too old for this. Oh my god. And I get like Andrew Marco, you've talked about how like Evan is a very hard role to sing. Yeah. But they cast other people in the stage show and they who did are not young. Sing it well. Oh really? Is Ben Platt the only person who can sing it? I mean, that's it can't be right. Seems like a slight against me, like a little bit. <laughs> the waving through the window low note is an A flat, and the high note is an A. It's a two octave range. It's you can't move that song at all. So you have to sing it in Ben Platt's keys. Oh. And all the other people I've seen do that song uh, when I sold concessions would sound like Kermit when they sang. Basically, <laughs> interesting. And these are talented actors who I've seen in other shows who have done well, including Colton Ryan, who is. Uh, Connor in the movie was the understudy for all those parts on Broadway and no one can do it well because he has an incredible voice and the songs are tailored to his voice and don't really work with other They just shouldn't have made a movie. I mean that was just a mistake. I am friends with although I think I've been downgraded to acquaintances with the casting director of the film and uh, she took (laughs) great offense when when the first trailer came out and I think I made some crack online on Twitter or something about like oh uh, oh, you know about how old he is. Everyone was saying this. Everyone. But I was like oh he's waving through the window of a country kitchen buffet while eating dinner at 4pm or something like that. And uh, um, and you know she was extremely days, upset saying like this is normal this is very normal that you know no high school movie has people who are actually in high school and you know my response although I didn't really engage with her because I it was a trap um but my response to that is like well no but this movie does everyone is a teenager except for him which is why he looks like he's 48 years old uh it's it's absurd and and yeah I guess his casting does work better on stage. I am curious about something that I noticed about him in the play that I wonder if it carries over to the film, if this is like always a thing with him. Um, Now, far be it for me to comment on someone's physical appearance or their attributes, but Ben Platt has something weird that happens when he cries. And he cries a lot in the show because he's just a little crybaby about all this. But uh, did anyone ever notice that like, when he cries, and he can cry on cue, good for him, uh, his face gets very puffy, very, very puffy, and yeah. it changes form, and he, he, he gets very squinty, and it it's looks like... Super Saiyan. It looks like Martin Short <laughs> in uh, the movie Pure Luck when he gets stung by a bee and he's allergic, and then he expands to a giant person. It's like he gets a big, puffy head, and... Uh, I found it very distracting and, uh, you know, Robin and I still joke about his weird, like, allergic cry reaction. Uh, is that uh, fixed oh boy, in the movie? I don't know. Oh, okay. I mean, is it not fixed? <laughs> Sorry. Um, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> no, the, the, the final I, bit of him in the orchard where you, like, see him fall, not the final, <laughs> final bit in the orchard, where he's singing the um, Waving Through Window reprise... 
is some of the ghoulish, ghoulishiest, that's not a word, (laughs) crying I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. I mean, also the movie is lit under like exclusively the coldest fluorescent lights you've ever seen, which makes everyone look horrifying. And even when he's outdoors, you're like, oh no, this is a monster person. This (laughs) is not a naturally normal color, shape, face person. It it has to do with him being a a man. I'm not saying that in some weird way. I'm not going in a bad direction with this. Like an adult. It just has. It just no, no. I I mean it genderedly. Like it has to do with him being like a a 27 year old man or whatever. Who 27? It's just like a. It's it's just an inflection point. You can look 24 or you can look 31, and he's leaning 31, and. It's just what's up. I mean, uh, Johnny, you said everybody else is a teenager, but Caitlin Devers is three years younger than him. It's not... Is she only that? Wow, okay. She's only three years younger than him. Also, I'm on her Wikipedia page right now. They have four things listed as known for and justified isn't there a crime. Um, (laughs) Well, it's also a thing where Caitlin Devers has been, like, recognizable in movies and TV for a long time playing a teenager. Like, she doesn't look the same as she did in Spectacular Now. She looks older. But she's yeah. still playing book smart girl and things like that. Like she still is as, able to read as a yeah. teenager. Most of the actors who are not teenagers read as teenagers. Yeah. Ben Platt does not at all. Ben Platt's exactly. movie stuff before this was Pitch Perfect, in which she was playing a college student, yeah. and that was yeah. five years before this. So again, good God, why would you do even, that? To even his in the hair? Ryan Murphy, sh- even that in the Ryan hair. Murphy show, he doesn't look that old. And he's playing a high schooler no, there. But everyone is sort yeah. of old looking. They all that, they all match him. Like. He doesn't stand out. That's the it's the Dawson's yeah. Creek thing. Exactly. You have to all match and then you can buy it. We can all suspend our disbelief that all of the Riverdale kids are in high school because they all are the same vague age yeah. range. They all but, look like they yeah. match each other. You also have a lot of parents in this movie that don't look very old. And like maybe they need to age up the parents a little more. I know Julianne mm-hmm. Moore is not young. But she does not look sixty. No. Yeah. So, it's like a and it feels like story. This is a story that features young parents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who don't. She totally also doesn't know how to read. Do it. Like that's really more. Also, does not read low status enough to play this role. No. I just wanted to well, use that when phrase. They Sorry. This cast. When they announced this cast, and I saw Amy Adams and Julianne Moore, I said, "Oh, Amy Adams is playing Evan's right. mom, and Julianne right. Moore is playing Mrs. Murphy." Yes. Amy Adams would have been a perfect harried disaster. She would have been, yeah, had this movie yeah. been good, she could have been nominated for a Golden Globe. Yeah, if oh, she was the other mom. High praise. I, I just wanted to interject that I am so tired of everyone being so desperate for Amy Adams to have an Oscar <laughs> that all it takes is for them to announce a new film that she's going to be and people start like clearing off a shelf for her like oh okay well, oh she's going to star in some uh film where she sees night a murder bitch. through a window it's like well this could be it it's like well all you know Hannah, is that she's, could be it. <laughs> she's in a drama with a with a premise that that's all you know you uh but yeah it's it's just nuts if the title this of is... night bitch changes before the movie comes out it will not win any oscars this is a real movie <laughs> yes oh. about a woman who believes she's turning into a dog yeah, that's her Oscar win. That's going to be it. Johnny, I, I think that Julianne Moore shares this with Amy Adams, but the thing is that when they appear as the lead of a film, regardless of what the subject matter of the film is, it just lends such a gravitas to it. Not to say that they can't be, like, funny, that they can't work in different modes, but, like, if I see Amy Adams on the poster for a movie, 
I'm going to just assume that it might tear at my heartstrings. So it's like, I get it. I kind of get it. I, I assume yeah. that they can spin anything into gold yeah. is my point. The, yeah. It's fascinating to me that we have two like Oscar winners slash nominees, Adam Zamor, who are like carrying the weight of prestige on this movie. And they didn't bother to get a dad who matched that. Mm. No offense to SVU's very own Nick Amaro, but he is not at the level. And it's so bizarre that he's there. <laughs> No, I, but and I feel that Caitlin Deaver, sort of as a young Hollywood person, brings some sort of yeah, I agree. elegance to it. I just how much better? Like this is a question for you all: if you replace Ben Platt with anyone else who did this on Broadway, or someone they discovered introducing Johnny Pomato as Evan Hansen, <laughs> how many Just, points does this movie go up? Hmm. <laughs> well, if, like because if, if it's it was me, just, I mean, if it's like a teenage boy, I think it goes up quite a bit. Yeah, if there's just a kid, like the movie would still have the flaws of being. Dear Evan Hansen, the movie. But when people from the one from the moment people saw the trailer, they're like, "That's what it's about." But they could not get over him because he's wearing makeup. But didn't they? Isn't there some article saying that he they did some CGI touch up as well? Oh, probably. Well, it didn't help. Weird. Wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a perfect storm of a lot of things. Like, yeah, it's it's bad hair, it's bad makeup, uh, it's bad costuming. He's wearing that like little boy shirt, but he's you know, <laughs> six the little foot boy three. shirt is iconic. Yeah, I, um, and, and yeah, it's just who he's surrounded by. Like, there was a way to make Ben Platt work. I, I, I think it's also maybe you know. I'm judging by the trailer alone. But yeah, it's the direction of the film. It's how it's shot. It looks a little too um, soft focus uh, and, and dark where it's like, oh, you you need this to look like a Disney Channel movie where, where everything right. pops, yeah. even though it's like Smart sad. Sub- exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh, they also veer away from any of the like surrealist elements that make musicals musicals. Mm-hmm. Like there's one sequence with dancing. And I'm not saying that the stage show has dancing. But like, it there's movement. There's a choreographer. You you know you're like in yeah, the. Yeah, there's people thing. walking across the stage who are not yeah. actually there. They're just right, expressing there. metaphors, yeah. whatever. Yeah, and I mean, the, the movie's like, no, except we have to do sincerely me. So we have to have one element of it. So we'll just shoehorn it in. That's um, the problem. It's like a musical exclusively made of ballads, except for that one upbeat song, which I think. Uh, even on the day I saw it, I said, like, well, that's a song, at least. Like, you can imagine yeah. them, like, singing, Pasek and Paul singing that at a at a pitch meeting where it's like, oh, yeah, yeah you've got something here. Well, that's, but the rest it's is all this song that forwards character and plot. The rest of them are just like, here, I'm stating a thing that you already knew about me. It has not changed they're anything songs. else. Yeah. They yeah, have no trash, rhymes right? that would affect. There's no two-syllable rhymes in the entire show, basically. <laughs> they're not trying to make it hard. They're trying to sell albums. And they did. It won a Grammy. I mean, I also can't. I could not hum you any song from this show except for Sincerely Me and Waving Through a Window because it has that sort of interesting riff at the end of the chorus. But otherwise, I couldn't tell you what a single song from this show. They're nothing. Connecting this with the novel, was was anyone else very surprised that... that the lyrics of the song weren't um, translated a bit more into the prose and into the dialogue. I fully expected him to say, like, you know, gosh, sometimes it just feels like I'm tap, tap, tapping on a door, waving through a window. <laughs> and there's very little of that up until, I guess, Sincerely Me has a few of those lyrics. And then uh, uh, but the me Forever song. Stuff- yeah, sincerely yeah. me, they are writing stuff down. It's a conversational song. For forever, he saying. is talking to the family. Waving through window just... Because ha- there is so much... 
internal monologue in the book. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're like, well, we don't need to have yeah. the internal monologue of the song. Yeah, I just expected a few like references to the lyrics well, more, then, like to like Zoe's song. Zoe's songs are 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 pretty much all written out, right? At least the one is because she because she they're diegetic this book is songs. Doing that so she's much out. work yeah. to make, and then like, her Larry does say, "This is how you break in a glove." Um, <laughs> what else? Oh yes, you said Larry. I'm ready. Okay. I oh, oh, let's we go. keep touching on the parents and just and and I I keep not not butting in which is unlike me. Um Larry I like that he's the stepdad. I'm okay with it. Here's what's up. Here's why. But in the book he's not, right? He's the dad. Yeah, right, the book. sure. And I'm assuming in the original play he's not either, right? So, yeah. I think that you're correct that they put the stepdad thing in in the movie. <laughs> for this, like, very restrictive concept of, like, race in cinema, which I think is bad and stupid, and they shouldn't need to do that. But if we assume that it was done for a less shitty reason, which it wasn't, I think it works really well to have him as a stepdad because the the movie's got very, like, simple ideas. It's not the most profound thing I've ever seen. I kind of feel like I see where it's going and, and what archetypes people are falling into. And the scene between Larry and Evan, where they discuss, you know, Connor, and Larry discusses the specific perspective of getting to know him when he's like three years old and how he took to me really quickly. I was like, oh, that's a beautiful way to describe the love between a father and a child is that it doesn't always happen from birth. And it made it feel weirdly real. It was like, okay, this story is already about something. It's about a family that loses their son. But then, you know, in real life, nothing's ever just about one thing. Like, there's gonna be the complication of, you know, this this isn't his biological father, but it is in every way his father. It totally landed for me. And I think that performance, what did you say the actor's name was? Danny Pino. I thought it was incredible. He's great. Yeah, And ag- I, him yeah. up against... Uh, Amy Adams, real bad. She's not good in this movie. <laughs> it does add some stakes, too, when they're fighting in front of Evan right before he confesses. And they're just like, well, you didn't, you did too, you were too hard on him. You weren't hard enough on him. He's not even your son. How dare you? Like, yeah. Yeah, I like how Caitlin Devers is like, what the fuck? Yeah, yeah I really appreciate that. Because, like, my concern with making him a stepdad is giving that, like, like really traditional version of a stepdad where he's like well he wasn't a good father and he's not your father and like that relationship it didn't help you because like you didn't have your real dad uh, mm-hmm. which is evan's problem is that he has no dad um, and his and he wants mom him. doesn't make dinner for him she's <laughs> awful she's working really fucking hard evan yeah and <laughs> so he like, can't just order freaking grubhub no he's too stressed well they hadn't I mean, they hadn't invented contactless delivery yet so but like the I really appreciate in that scene that Caitlin Deaver is like, whoa, whoa, that's my dad. Like, you don't, don't, nobody's getting divorced here, right? Because it was so easy, I think, to be like, well, the stepdad was too hard on Connor and pushed him in the wrong direction and didn't know how to handle him because he's a stepdad. And I do appreciate that the, the movie does sidestep a lot of that. And a lot of it is Danny Pino's performance, which is really strong. There's a lot of good performances that are unfortunately undercut by the rest of the movie. But... 
<sighs> I was so worried when they introduced him. I was like, this is Connor's mom and stepdad. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, really, like, put my hackles up. We haven't even mentioned that his name is Mark Evan Hansen. I know. He sounds like he murdered a beetle. <laughs> <laughs> it That's only like, in the book, right? It sounds like Jared Leto put on a ton of weight to play him in a movie that then went straight to DVD, which did happen with that Lennon movie. <laughs> Flipping through this book, it does a lot with formatting, huh? I didn't oh read the physical book. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Does anybody want to speak on that? Is it effective? I think the text messages are effective. Uh, the emails are perfectly fine. They're like then scattered all over the, the page kind of thing. The end of act one, scattered YouTube comments or whatever. The best part of it's the show. Hard. It's hard to like mirror what the show is doing. And the movie does the exact same thing. So many, like, so many delightful um, Broadway actors have Grammys now because they contributed. <laughs> I never met you, Connor. But coming on here, reading everyone's posts to the album, it's great. What is the good version of the end of this story? So we take issue with it. Evan goes to jail. Frankly, that it doesn't need to be told, right? I think that's the real takeaway is like, as I said at the beginning, is like, what is it saying? Not much. Why, Why tell this story? If you do attempt to do this, and it's about a kid who, let's say, even more nefariously capitalizes on this assumed connection to a, a dead person, what what actually is a fitting ending? Because, I mean, he ends up alone. I don't know. Of all the things I hate about it, the ending really isn't one of them. I, I honestly think it's less the ending for me. It's more the perspective. Like, I see the cool A24 movie in which a family meets the friend of their son that they never knew and he basically takes their place and they find out he was never the friend and it could Mm -hmm. be the exact same story i just think it's more compelling if it's from the family's perspective than evans i think yeah please i think uh zoe is too nice at the end Mm -hmm. i think she should be incredibly creeped out and not speak to him again and if anyone's gonna meet him at the orchard maybe like cynthia or larry Right. The fact that he basically is obsessed with her and that's not the reason he does all these things, but it's the reward for most of the time is that it's pretty gross. There's a he gets a girlfriend crazy out. Crazy page of the book where he's like debating whether or not to tell her and is just like, Oh, but I like her so much and maybe I'll marry her. I don't know. Yes, it's oh my gosh. Horrifying. Oh yeah. Where he's At like, I don't know about soulmates, say... but I think she's mine. It's like, dude, yeah. you are creepy. Doesn't he say at one point that like he if he sees Zoe, he doesn't need to take his meds that yep. day because it like makes him feel okay. Yeah, because women sick. can solve it's... your problems. And like... the, the, there's a line where uh, she says, "Oh, you want to go to this frozen yogurt shop I used to work at?" And he says, "Oh, as if I didn't used to walk by that yogurt shop all the time when I heard that she was working there." It's like, "Oh, you creep!" I, I, the book really is missing a scene like... in which the ghost of Connor, like you know, is lurking around the bedroom and like has to watch Evan get to third base with his sister. I mean, it's just <laughs> gross. It's uh, yeah, the, the whole thing that he is rewarded with it by the through this relationship. And I think that, you know, the way the play ends, even the way the book ends, uh it's not all there on the page, but there is room to interpret for those who want to interpret that like Mm, there's a little door left ajar for uh the two to get back together. She does 
vaguely forgive him. They are sitting next to each other at the end, and uh, yeah, it's it's just gross. I, to, to me, I think what this ending has to be, or what it should be, is uh, this whole story feels like a college essay where it's like, yes, I did this horrible thing, uh, but this is what I learned from it, and it, a lot of people felt better in the process, and now I'm a better person. And you need that, like, college admissions officer to say, like, oh, no, you are horrible. Like, you, you, you are just <laughs> awful. No, you haven't... I, I just called all the other something. colleges, and you can't get in anywhere now. Yeah, it's, it's the an anti-risky uh, business. Yeah. Well, I had a friend who listened to the album before they ever saw the show, and they assumed he killed himself at the end. Mm. <laughs> it ends with that reprise of For Forever. It's like all we see is sky for forever. And they're like, oh, yeah, Evan dies at the end. I'm like, no. But that's what happens when you basically, because you want to sell singles, you cut as much dialogue from your record as possible. So it's just pretty melodies. It's really hard to quantify how he feels at the end or what he has learned. Because at the beginning, he's lonely and sad, and at the end, he's lonely and sad and hated. And it's like, it, it just doesn't feel, that's the that's the issue I keep coming back to, is like, it doesn't really feel like this is a story in the sense that, like, stories generally, like, move to a place with intention. And I can't figure out how bringing him to this end point is any indicator of growth or, or what have you. Even though I'm, I'm interested in the depiction of him self-loathing you know he reaches a better place with his mother mm -hmm. i think he reaches a place where he's like oh i do need help and i need to spend some time with myself to figure out what that will be like i mean i'm not here to defend him or the way the story handles him i don't I'm really think amused a lot that i'm there. making you defend him <laughs> I think that the breakthrough with his mom is the big thing. The problem with that scene is she's like, it's okay. You don't have to tell me what you did. You don't have to ever do anything about it. It's what matters is that like, I'm here for you now when I haven't been here for you before. Um, but he does, he's ready to tell her and he's like, I'm a bad person. I mean, the, the impulse of every mother is to be like, no, of course you're not a bad person. He is though. He's done a thing for which he correctly identifies himself as a bad person. Right. But that like that's the emotional crux of like the end of the show for me is not talking to the Murphys but talking to his mom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also I want to say one thing about Zoe. Mm -hmm. I think on in on the stage she is quite acerbic and weird too. There's something like uh, about her that like feels a little more like she has like an edge. She's like whatever. Caitlin Deaver doing a perfectly nice job, but like is a soft nice girl. And I think the book also presents Zoe as just like a soft nice girl who wants to have a nice boyfriend and have a good life. And I think that extra edge, like I think the stage show is my least favorite version of this whole thing, but the extra edge on her, the extra edge on Connor, the extra edge on like the ending kind of better for me i don't know like i i appreciate those sort of touches of like nastiness because it's on paper such a nasty story i think Does that i don't sense? like caitlin deaver in this role i don't think she's doing really anything interesting with it i also don't really believe her as someone that's mourning a loss um she's just she's just sort of um She's just sort of blank, and the her best moment is when, uh, you know, her mom is like, "You're not even the real dad," and she's like, "What the fuck did you just say?" Like that felt really real and really good. But when she and Ben Platt are together, I buy 
that Ben Platt could sell me on he, a character he's playing being in a steamy heterosexual relationship. I'm sure it's possible, but not with Caitlin Deaver and not with Caitlin Deaver giving this performance, which feels very much like factually my brother just died, but I'm not letting that live through me very much at all. Like I don't I don't read in her performance that she's going going through it. Maybe I mean Zoe's me. not that sad that Connor is gone. Until she gets to know this fake version of Connor, and then she's like, that you gave my brother back to me stuff. But the fake version of Connor is just like this boy who thinks you're cute telling you things he thinks about you. Yes. That whole, if I could tell her song is so weird. And and slightly horny, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Since we're talking about a movie, uh, it it totally reminds me that uh, I saw this great documentary, uh, I don't know if anyone's heard of it, called Finding Vivian Meyer. Um, anyone know? Is it weird that this book is constantly referencing other pieces of pop culture? Like it's like doing these stealth uh, uh, recommendations of like if you like this, you might like that. But like it's always calling attention to things like Finding Vivian Meyer repeatedly, uh, Moonrise Kingdom, all of these things that like are better depictions of these sorts of uh, you know emotions and relationships than this could ever hope to be. What are who do we think could have made this movie better? Like, who's a better choice Ooh. to direct this movie than the guy I who think, gives the perks of being a wallflower? And I think Chabosky makes so much sense for this movie. I, I actually would not... I don't know. Obviously, it's he his movie. He did a movie. bad job. Yeah, you have to kind of put the failure at his feet. But, like, it makes sense why they chose him. There's a direct line from Perks of Being a Wallflower to Dear Evan Hansen. Um, I want to go to bat for this book. It's it's not it's not like one of my favorites. I don't I, I think a lot of it's kind of interminable, but there's interiority in it. That's good. So page one oh eight, kind of one of the um big moments in any version of this story, which is when he's at dinner with the family for the first time, the Murphys, and he doubles down on the lie. Uh whichever one of them says, We want to hear what you have to say, please, Evan. And then he thinks, I don't know how to do it, how to let this woman down after all she's been through. Her heart is in my hands. That's what it feels like. Even her husband is standing by, all alert, his fork down, just waiting. I glance at the last person at the table, Zoe. Her expression is softer now, as if her curiosity has briefly overpowered her doubt. They need something, this family. They need me to say something that will make them feel better. Okay, here's the deal. He's bad, and he he should not double down on this lie, but I do think it's very rare for pieces of fiction to, like, written by adults to remember what it was like to be in high school and what a stupid moron, at least I could be, and how easily influenced and peer pressured and whatnot. I can totally mm-hmm. believe him doubling down in that moment, and I think Val Emick does a pretty good job of expressing... Why? Now, Johnny, you had an experience with both the physical book and the audiobook. As far as like the quality of this text goes, and I think you didn't really enjoy the novel from what you've well, been saying. Yeah. Uh I, how would I w- you compare the two? Like what, okay. what how do you think they work? Uh I I think that my initial reaction was just uh abhorrent disgust and surprise that this was written in the first person and (laughs) so poorly 
And uh, I, the reason I switched to the audiobook was because I read about the first 60 pages of the book, and every time I sat down to do it, it would physically put me to sleep. Like, I just, <laughs> I could not engage with it. Uh, I it was just something I I rather detested. Uh, I mean, it was a retelling of a story I knew I didn't like, and I was really having a tough time with it. That said, listening to the audiobook, uh, I think that uh, the uh, the reader gives a better performance than I remember Ben Platt giving mm-hmm. overall, and uh, I do think that this book is a better telling of a bad story than its original source material is. I would say it's an improvement on the play, other than the fact that it's longer. Uh, but you don't have to listen to as many songs. Uh, we do get like some of the uh, diegetic songs from Zoe, like actually sung, which I didn't need. Um, yeah, <laughs> me uh, neither. <laughs> uh, but it, um, I, I guess, it went down smoother than I expected. Uh, whereas I think that I found myself zoning out while I was reading the book. Uh, whereas hearing it performed, I could accept it more as a uh, a, a piece of juvenile theater. Yeah, I felt basically the same way. I was I only listened to it, but once you said that to me like a, a week ago, where you were like, "This book is really hard to read," I thought it might actually be pretty blandly written. It's just going down smoother because it's being read to me. And the, the the triteness of it doesn't totally, it wasn't totally pinging me because I was like just hearing someone spew it pretty naturally because I think the narration in the audiobook's pretty terrific. Um, but whenever I open a page of this book, I'm like, this is this is hard to get through. This is like this is kind of a slog. Hannah Blackman. Yes, I think we have to acknowledge that this is a work of young adult fiction. It's not written for us as people in our 30s, you know, and like I've read enough young adult fiction and enough adult fiction that like there comes a point when going back to young adult fiction feels really juvenile and trite and light. And you're like, oh, get richer, do more. But they don't because that's the purpose. Like this is for teenagers to read as they, you know, transition from young readers into adult books and kids who are not super interested in reading like whatever literary fiction have something that they can engage with that gets them reading books that gets them in the right direction and i think that as a young adult book this is really well written actually it's like much more interestingly written than a lot of young adult books that i've read where i'm like pulling teeth to be like oh why won't you engage with your own subject matter like this book at least i think is really trying hard to be to like contextualize scenes that in the stage show are just like amorphous trying really hard to contextualize emotions to give you a clean through line and i found it very readable i got through it very fast i think coming at it from that perspective of like not expecting it to be a masterpiece but like it's fast. It's a fast read because it has the the young adult like level of depth to it. I mean, some young adult books, I don't mean to knock them. They're very good and valuable. There's nothing wrong with a young adult book. They're just written differently on purpose. We, and we've also read a lot of junior novelizations that are even more simply and poorly yeah. written than this. Well, I've I've gone to the mat for a lot of those. Like I, I I've stood up for this junior novelization's really good or or whatever. And and I'm not disagreeing with you, Hannah. I think you make a terrific point which is a lot of the junior novelizations we've read are for children and i've gotten used to being like oh for you know for something geared towards a child this is doing interesting things and it's sort of 
treating them with a level of intelligence they can handle, but is, you know, is not condescending. I'm sure that the thing that is frustrating me about this book is that because it's young adult, it's teasing or hinting at things that I would maybe be used to getting fleshed out more fully in, like, an adult novel. And so getting those little tastes is frustrating me. But I, I hear where you're coming from. I, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, to- I mean, that's what's frustrating about young adult novels reading from an adult perspective, is you want those more things that you would get out of an adult literary fiction book. And you aren't going to get them because that's not the book you're reading. Right. Like, I feel the same way about, oh, my God. At one point, there was, like, a like a young Victor Frankenstein young adult series, and I was like, I'm going to read all of those, and I just found them unbelievably frustrating because I wanted them to do more. Right. And I was asking too much of them, and that was unfair to what had been actually presented to me. So, like, I want to stick up for it on that point. It is, like, 400 pages long. It's way too stinking long. Yeah. Which is just, like, hard. It's hard to, like, I got this book in the mail, and it's, like, a hardcover. It's thick. And I was like, oh, my God, are you kidding? Already, like, a a two-and-a-half-hour musical. Like, must we? But, you know, I don't know. It's also just an unpleasant character. I've already said this before, but it's an unpleasant POV to be in. So, like, yeah, I read through it fairly quickly when I actually mustered up the will to sit down and read it. (laughs) You could get through, like, 40, 80 pages at a time. And then, at a certain point, the Connor chapters become more interesting, and I'm then thrust back into Evan Hansen and his bullshit. (laughs) It's so upsetting. Yeah, Ghost Connor might have made a better story. Uh, I, I did get uh fairly caught up in those and but it only like left me with questions that you want to ask him like hey, connor what do you think of this and what do you think of that and you really want to probe to get him to say some of the things that you are thinking as the reader of finding this situation deplorable that connor is way less offended by i guess because he is in a blissful state of heavenly uh salvation or whatever he in or is he in purgatory forced to walk the earth and stay in high school all the rest of his days i don't know who knows because he didn't actually kill himself apparently (laughs) apparently yeah i mean there's a scene in the stage show where the ghost connor and evan have a conversation where connor's like what are you doing what if you did this why aren't you doing more of that and it's like uh i i wanted more of that here like there is a moment where the ghost connor tries to talk to evan and is like don't lay in the middle of the street get up (laughs) Um, and I think I could have used a little more of that because uh, I want those two characters to like, they're purposefully totally right divorce. Like that's the point. But I, mm-hmm. when you have these opportunities to like grind the gears, I like it and I want a little more of it. Well, it, that's an interesting point, Hannah. It's, it's the whole story is predicated on them not having a relationship, which is the opposite of how a lot of drama happens where a lot of drama is like, I'm, I'm cheating on my wife, and so the secret is that I do have a relationship to this person. Or like the Godfather 2 thing, where Fredo's like, Oh, Johnny Ola, nice to meet you for the very first time. I've never done a crime with you. Like, (laughs) this is the exact opposite, where this book is like, I was best friends with Connor. Actually, I wasn't. Which isn't super dramatically fertile, because... 
you can't pull a ton of meaning out of I wasn't except isn't lying bad. (laughs) I mean, I think it's interesting. The movie does a thing where it takes so much onus off of Evan by like at the dinner scene, he doesn't volunteer any information. Like the parents are like, oh, you mean this? You mean this? And they present the lies to him and he just agrees Mm -hmm. to it. Um, And he like doesn't come up with the Connor project. He just agrees to go along with it. And I think that's like, where was I going with that? There's like a, a level of like, you you see what you want to see in other people and in the experiences you're having and everyone around him, like the moment they have the opportunity to be like, oh, you knew him. That's great. Latch mm-hmm. onto it and won't let go to the point where in the movie in particular, like it's almost not his fault that things get so out of control. No. He's just sort of like swept up in it and doesn't quite have the backbone to really put his foot down and say, no, you're wrong. You've reminded and the, me. I think the show is not like that and the book is not like that. And I prefer it. <laughs> Hannah, you've reminded me of the funniest part of the movie. Is this in the play, the a la mode thing? <laughs> yes. Okay. The Just the funniest. The Ben Platt, I mean, like, we're ragging on him a lot. Legitimately so funny in this one moment <laughs> in the movie where he's singing a song and people are speaking at him during his song. And at one point, they're like, did he ever take you to the ice cream place, a la mode? And he does this thing with his hand that just had me howling, where he's like, and then, of course, we went to a la mode. And he puts his hand out as if to be like, thank you for the improv suggestion. (laughs) I'm also sad that, like, we talked about how the movie cuts out, like, most of the songs. That Sincerely Me reprise, where Eva's like, we have to make it seem like he was getting worse. It doesn't make sense. It's just like a level of darkness that is yeah i missed it i missed it i i'm thinking here uh before we we move towards the end like is there anything specific to the book that we haven't touched on there's some ghost connor stuff like specifically in relation to miguel that we haven't gotten to so here's part of the miguel narrative that i guess val Emick just made up so he's talking about miguel he says we hung out a little at school but after school we were a duo We'd go downtown, stay warm in the bookstore, watch the skateboarders at Irwin Center. I'd be waiting outside the bakery when he got off work. I'd go with him to bring the unsold baguettes to his cousin. We'd end up on a bench, tossing bread to birds, regretting how much waste there was in the world. Sometimes these conversations happened on a bus. Weird line. Other nights on his living room couch, oh I see, his mom would come (laughs) home and whip us up a feast. I'd leave at bedtime, my belly and head full. And then one day in second semester, he was in a panic. Oh, he he says heart too. Heartful. Hmm. They found weed on him. For the first time, his swagger was missing. I tried to downplay it. It's just a little weed. And so what if they do kick you out? You'd be lucky to get out of this place. You think it was easy for me to get in here? Maybe for you. I started thinking the worst. What if he did get kicked out? Where would that leave me? What would I do without him? And then another split second decision. I went to the dean, told him it was mine. I don't know what I thought would happen. I wasn't thinking it through, just following some gut thing. And then, of course, it leads to not only Connor getting kicked out for a thing he didn't do, speaking to this thing we were talking about, about softening Connor at all costs, but that is the reason he's alienated from Miguel, is his mom starts to be like, that's a bad kid. Like, don't don't hang out with him. Um I don't know if I have like a specific take on it. I think it's fine. I think it's kind of interesting, but I just feel like we'd be remiss 
if we went through a Dear Evan Hansen episode without mentioning that the author just made that up completely. I have an inkling that Miguel is a pretty bad person. Uh, and one of the clues uh, is that what is one of the things that he and Connor discuss to open up their minds? Well, what do we learn about Miguel? He's a uh, 9-11 truther, for one. One of the things they <laughs> talk about is, oh, yeah, and then Miguel told me some very interesting things about Building 7 and about how 9-11 might have been an inside job. That comes out of nowhere. Wow. <laughs> I mean, this is like the last third of the book, and then suddenly they drop that little nugget. It, I, I don't know. It's, it told me a little something about the authors. There's actually a song about Building 7 on YouTube <laughs> that might be better than most of the songs in, in Dear I, I, I mean, I think it. it's essentially sick to take a story that's already about co-opting a dead kid's pain <laughs> and make it not only a dead kid, a dead queer yeah. kid. Yeah. Like, I think mm-hmm. there's something really fucked up about that. Um, and I, I it's don't... It's not the fix you think I mean, it is. I, it's... No, no, no. Like, I can't... I don't think I can articulate what exactly is so icky about it. Um well, I but think, it's icky. I <laughs> think especially <laughs> because so much when when uh, Evan comes forward or or is or is uh, uh, outed as Connor's friend supposedly, everyone's natural assumption at first is like, "Oh, were, were you two lovers, and this is why yeah. this explains so much." And it's like, "No, no, 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 no! I am totally into girls, uh, especially you, Zoe." Uh, but uh, the fact that they deny or Evan actively denies that for Connor. And then that ends up being the truth, which then I guess uh, the book almost implies was a major factor in that. It's yeah, it is very uh, icky and problematic to be sure. Hannah, I think the thing that bothers me about it is that it it just seems to imply that being in the closet or whatever, like accelerated Mm -hmm. him towards self-harm. I mean, like not that it's ever said explicitly, but that's what it makes me feel. And that's why it feels gross to me. Yeah, that's a great yeah. point. That's a good point. And then, like, the, when the moment that Miguel is like, hey, what if we had a real relationship where we talked to each other? Uh, Connor freaks out and calls it off, which feeds into that point, Andrew. Mm-hmm. There's also just, like, not really any purpose to the magical realism of it all, like, other than to give us this information. Like, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't, like we said, it doesn't really affect Evan in any way. It doesn't affect any of the characters. It's just, like... Want to be in two depressed boys' heads? Here you go. Here's the second one. <laughs> At the end, when Connor, like, whatever, moves on. He makes why? his exit. I mean, yeah, like, uh, the, you know, the concept of a ghost is, like, whatever, you have unfinished business. Does his business get finished that he can, like, let his, like, is his family going to be okay? I don't know. That doesn't feel like there's a moment. He's just there to be there. And then he's like, well, the story's over, so I'll see myself out. My family acknowledged that they're a little shitty. My work here is done. (laughs) (laughs) My unfinished business is my family found out that kid was lying? I don't know. (sighs) (laughs) Does Evan know throughout the story that he himself attempted suicide? Does Evan know? Does Evan know that Evan did it? Like, because, yes, yes. Totally, because so, he did do it, but do, yeah. is he in, like, a, a crushing denial about it, or is he keeping it as a secret? I always thought that he was, it was a, a secret he was withholding for just the right moment for maximum emotional impact, is what I get, gathered. 
I think maybe the writers were doing that. Or that, well, that too. (laughs) I got the feeling, in the movie at least, when he falls from the tree at the end, that he was like looking back on it and being like, I need to be honest with myself about what was happening on that day. That would certainly Mm -hmm. be healthier. I mean, as in terms of like narrative devices. As opposed to be like, he just is keeping two different secrets. I think you could read it either way. I like your version better, Andrew, but I think the way he talks to his mom about it, where he's like, you would hate me if you knew what I did, mm-hmm. implies that he knew what he did, and when it didn't work, he was so ashamed and so mad at himself, and so mm-hmm. like, how could I have even thought that I should have done that, that he just put it away. Yeah. Until the computer lab where he accidentally wrote a suicide note. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. I, I, that I is said such this- a... A Sorry, rough go, piece Hannah. of plot device where it's yes. like we were the only people in the com- in the computer lab, and I happened to pick up your piece of paper for you because I'm a nice guy. But then I read it, and it was weird. Uh, it's just like a little too. Um. I laughed when Evan came out on stage during the the big scene where he gives the speech, and and he, and Jared puts his phone down because he's playing games, <laughs> and he's just like, "Holy shit!" Um, oh, I do want to talk me. about how that in the book is maybe my favorite way that a song is integrated in which it's just mm-hmm. not. He simply blacks out and has no idea what he said in his speech <laughs> at all. <laughs> and it's just vaguely implied that it's gone viral and changed people. They don't reference a single point he makes. There's no mention of the lyrics. It's just like, wow, you did it. Yeah. I understand yeah. that, um, that, songs and musicals are an abstraction of reality but in the movie when the when the video went viral i was like play that video for me let me see what happened (laughs) you don't want to see it andrew it's just paul metzler's speech from election (laughs) well because it's like did it is the implication that evan's speech gets way better as it goes is the part where he's singing actually him getting much more eloquent i assume the assumption is that the organization of a song suggests that his speech is organizing itself. That right. it has the same poetic beauty and lyrical nature of the song, You Will Be Found. Mm-hmm. Even if it has none of those words. It must have some of those words. I'm sure the word you is said at some point. Yeah, I mean, I uh, that song is so empty. Um Morally. <laughs> I just, it also has my least favorite. I think it's only in the stage show. I forget if it's in the movie. When uh, he's talking to Cynthia Murphy and he's like, what happened? And she says, you did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kill me. I mean, I think the, 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 the dialogue part that's like, you know, Connor let me know I wasn't alone and I wish we could have done that for him is pretty poignant. The rest of you will be found. Is literally just like bullshit platitudes. 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 <laughs> ben platitudes. Mark platitudes. Especially because <laughs> when they recycled that song in The Greatest Showman, it's the exact yep. same song. It's the exact same song. It's the exact same message and moment and everything. Ugh. Whatever Val Emick Stan wrote his Wikipedia page, <laughs> put some dig on it where he was like, he was like, uh, Val Emick was uh, commissioned to write the 
the novelization of the stage play, when Mark Platt uh, was working on or was producing the, the film, he drew almost nothing from the novelization. That's not true. <laughs> he pulled the book list from it. Hannah Blackman. Yeah. You are a park ranger? <laughs> oh, okay. And you've got a new apprentice who is not great scenario. at the job. You send Keeps him running off. off and climbing trees and not being helpful. It, it, part of the training is that you have to, at some point, give him responsibility. <laughs> and so you send him off to do trail maintenance for a day, just knowing that the trail's going to get all fucked up. <laughs> but you have to somehow ignore that anxiety and get on with your life. You can spend the day in your cabin. Um, you're charging admission as people drive in. Reading a copy of Dear Evan Hansen by Val Emick, a novelization of not the film, but rather the stage musical. Knowing what you know, would you read this book? Um... I mean, no, look, I, no, I never, ever, ever would have read this on my own, no matter what, like nothing anybody ever said to me would have convinced me to, except that I was required for this, my podcast job that doesn't pay me anything. Um, We've made, I think I, like $18 so far and uh, you will get your cut how? at some point. We have one ad only for oh, Anchor. I had no idea. Okay, great. Well, in that case, uh, I'm glad to have been paid to read this book that, um, you know, I think is maybe the best version of this story for me. I didn't mind reading it once I sort of like committed my uh, a chunk of my soul to just saying goodbye. Um, but like, I, I just don't like the story and I can't in good conscience recommend it to anybody. I think if you were like, I really liked that musical, but I had some questions. I'd be like, well, do I have a book for you? And also never call me again. <laughs> I don't know. It's, I can't. In, I can't in good conscience say like anybody should read this, but I do think it's decently well written and it's doing some things that are better than the stage show. So eh, eh, I don't know. Does that help? Is that okay? Yeah. No, it's super helpful. <laughs> Hannah, pick, pick up the baton. Okay. Uh, Johnny Pomato, you are a high school overachiever. You love to join clubs, you love to lead clubs, you love to take over clubs that weren't your idea to begin with, but that's just the kind of person you are. And one of the clubs that you decide to get really, really into is a memorial project for a dead boy who you only kind of knew and didn't like very much. But you're going to be the best dead friend to him that he could ever have in his death. But then, like, the other guy in the club um, is kind of sketchy, and you think maybe he wasn't actually any kind of friend to this dead kid, and you call him on it. Okay, and he comes back at you with like, no, no, we were real friends. Here's the book of Dear Evan Hansen. <laughs> Having read all that, would you forgive him? I decided. Would you share it on the internet? <laughs> oh, gosh, I would love to out him and just expose <laughs> him for the monster that he is, which is, you know, what I've tried to help do in these past few hours. <laughs> uh, yeah, I cannot. Well, Okay. I cannot recommend this book to anyone because of what the story is. I do think it is probably better told than any other version. I agree with you on that, Hannah. Uh, I think that there is nothing inherently wrong with uh, like YA fiction and such, and I think a lot of it is a source of good. I think that this story is so abhorrent and poorly told 
that uh, even the best telling of it, like, can't be all that good. Uh, so I would like to align myself with the most sympathetic character in Dear Evan Hansen, Evan's father, and abandon him forever. <laughs> uh, just like any rational person would want to do. <laughs> just, just beautiful. Leah Marilla Thomas, you are finishing up a guest spot on the TV show 30 Rock. <laughs> this is a huge boon for you. It really bolsters your your acting resume, which also includes Ugly Betty and something else I mentioned. Uh, <laughs> as you leave, you get a couple notifications on your phone. Um, one is that the you know the the organization you you started to help musicians uh, find management uh, is doing great. Another one is that uh, your 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 studio's uh, commissioning another album. You're such a multifaceted person. And the third notification on your phone says that someone wants you to write a novelization of the stage musical, Dear Evan Hansen. You go to sleep not knowing what you're going to do regarding any of these requests and are visited in a dream by your future self who puts into your mind the entirety of the book you will write. Upon awaking... Would you embark upon the journey of writing this book, knowing what it will contain? Uh, boy, oh boy, I would not. But I would relate to the feeling of wanting to fix a broken piece of art. Um, <laughs> as, I, as I already have on this podcast, talking about Star Trek Into Darkness and how I would fix it. Um, but no, I don't... Wait, what's the fix? You had a whole pitch for Star Trek Into Darkness. Yeah, I, how you, how you fixing I this don't one? know. I don't think there really is one other than maybe at the end, at your favorite part, at the end in the orchard, um, you have him talking to, like, the parents or his mother or anybody but Zoe, who I think is the most wronged, one of the most wronged in this story, in this cursed story. Mm-hmm. Andrew Overby, mm. you are a printer. Ten years ago, you were thrown across the room by an anxiety-ridden young boy. Mm-hmm. In the present day, that same anxiety-ridden young boy pulls out a piece of paper from your tray, I would say. I don't know the terminology. Oh, shit, I'm not it's a the same expert. fucking printer. <laughs> <laughs> This is a real Jurassic World Dominion twist. <laughs> holy moly. <laughs> Anakin built C-3PO. Oh, my God. The piece of paper that he pulls out says, there's a novelization of Dear Van Hansen, your favorite musical and favorite film. Would you read this novelization and recommend it to other printers or copiers or Xerox machines? I would... Let's take the two pieces of media I consumed. Movie, no. Movie, no good. Kind of, kind of like the last five minutes where he's just like, "Wow, I, I suck. What, what now?" Kind of want to see Dear Evan Hansen too, um, based <laughs> on that book. Uh, as Hannah said, to be fair, not written for me. Uh, I think the writer takes liberties, which is always more interesting than the writer going, "I'm just going to transcribe." I mean, we talk about these novelizations that are written 
to bolster interest in an in the product, right? Like Mean Girls was basically written to get more people into Mean Girls and to probably promote the musical. So that one was very much like this is I'm a job I'm on a job for hire like I'm just going to write Mean Girls down. And this book does more than that. It gives us a lot more of the Connor ghost. It gives us a lot more of the Evan interiority. I appreciate the frills, but ultimately, it's too long. It's too long. It's not interesting enough to be so long. So, no, I could not in good conscience conscience recommend this. Uh, I wouldn't read it. I also wouldn't print it using myself. (laughs) Andrew Marco. Hello. You are Evan Hansen. (laughs) Oh, Somebody (laughs) had to do it. I'm so sorry it fell on you. You have done a bad thing, or you're about to do a bad thing. How about that? And someone hands you the novelization of Dear Evan Hansen. Having read your own future, would you make the same choices? And would you use this book as a what not to do to hand (laughs) to other troubled kids about to embark on a terrible lie? We get so far away from the concepts that I I have trouble... (laughs) I don't even know what thing I'm responding to. I'm going to respond to what I want to because I'm Evan. Would you recommend I, this book? Uh, if you know, if you're morbidly curious about this universe, I do think it's the best version that I've encountered in terms of just like it goes more. I, I always like when books, as Andrew says, you know, take diversions, do different things, give us interiority that we don't get. So I like it for those reasons. I actually think, as we said, the audiobook was very well performed i think having professional stage actors helped that considerably but no i'm just ready for this property to die i don't need more people to experience it so if you've already sort of taken the poison that is dear van hansen and you want a little bit more sure if you have no history with this show don't engage with it and just let it die and never be revived and never done at city center's encores yeah thank god we're a few at this point, probably a few weeks away from it closing. Mm. The music box will be free again. Hooray. Oh, Hannah, I nearly forgot to do the joke. Here we go. Act like it's the beginning of the episode. <clears throat> Boy, what a book. I read this and I thought I thought I was done from Gene Meh from the Emoji Movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a, a major part of the book is that Evan Hansen's first name is actually Mark, but it's his dad's name, so nobody uses it. But he really sees himself as an M-E-H, a meh, which, as we all know, is a hard life for an emoji. <laughs> it is really hard, yeah. Um, Liam Marilla Thomas, yes. what are you doing? How are you doing it? And where should people experience it? Um, let's see. I am writing. I don't. I am no longer producing uh, the Headcom Podcast Newcomers with Nicole Byer and Lauren Lapkus. That's in the past. That's done. Don't accuse her of that. She's not doing it. Yeah. Um, but you can always go back and listen to it. I'm sure it went well. Um, I am a just a freelance entertainment journalist. I'm all over the place. Uh, recapping Westworld, as we mentioned earlier, for Vulture. I've got some stuff on Cosmo, Polygon. Hey, New York Comic Con's coming up. I'll probably be talking about The Walking Dead. For that, that's all. On the internet, you can follow me on Twitter at Leah Marilla. That's me. 
Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming back on. This was a this was a great boy, time. Oh boy, oh boy. I feel <laughs> I mean, you know, it's nice to be overeducated on things that you hate so that you can really just like come at them from all angles. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm blessed for that at least. We'll have you on sometime to talk about a, a film you unequivocally love. Wow. What a concept. <laughs> I think you'll you'll find, though, that that is no indicator of the quality of novelization. Yeah, I can imagine. To our listeners, thank you for showing up. Do I usually thank you? Uh, please rate <laughs> us. Please review our podcast. Please subscribe to it. Please tell people word of mouth is the most popular or is the most effective way to get this podcast out there and of course i'm going to end the show with a quote from a famous piece of literature please do tweet at me if you can recognize what this is from it's always a fun little guessing game to see who can get it and who can't the thing is evan when your father left us you were so excited about the moving truck I just couldn't bear to tell you. I couldn't bear to break your heart and tell you what was happening. When he took off at 3 a.m., it truly was the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime because I think of him as a dog. Good night. (laughs) 